Welcome to another episode of America's Constitution. I'm Andy Lepka here once again with Professor Akil Amar. Hello, Akil. Hey, Andy. Nice to see you. Good to see you. And uh, it's been a busy week for you. This week, I uh, traveled up to Yale and uh, saw you speak to the American Constitution Society, which was um, kind of a, a milestone in a sense because it's been a while since you spoke with them. Um, last year, as as our listeners may recall, we recorded an episode with the Yale chapter of the Federalist Society, which is a conservative organization, and the American Constitution Society is on the other side of the spectrum. So it's good that you're speaking to uh, to both sides, isn't it? It was it was really nice to get that invitation, and thank you to ACS. Love to do it again, and and if you all want to do a podcast episode in the future, organized around ACS, um, we're game. And of course, a lot happened in the country, and we'll get to that in the world. Um, but also in uh, Akil Amar land, um, you're in the process of filing an amicus brief. By the time we upload this episode, the brief will have been filed. We could have an episode called More, 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 or something like that. Major, 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 major. This is another more case. It's not Moore versus Harper. It's not ISL. It's Moore versus United States. It's about the taxing power of the United States, and we're going to talk about the importance of taxes, because taxes fund armies, and armies and national defense are important to an enduring constitution, and our constitutional project in particular. I think this is conceptually perhaps the most important case this term. Vic and I uh, have composed an amicus brief, and we're um, filing it. Other academics actually have also weighed in and have filed or are filing amicus briefs. That includes our friend Steve Calabresi on the other side, this time in an amicus brief with Ed Meese and Gary Lawson, my friend, my dear friend David Schizer, former dean of the Columbia Law School, my former boss at Columbia, because I taught there from time to time, still do from time to time, filed an amicus brief. The great Bruce Ackerman, my Yale colleague and teacher, filed an amicus brief. Um, and so the academics are, are seeing the significance of it. In a nutshell, there, there's, there's some technical issues, but the deep issue is whether a wealth tax of the sort that people like Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren have been advocating is constitutional. That's the deep underlying issue. Oh, and it turns out, in my view, the correct answer to that, which the, most of the parties aren't focusing on, but but Calabresi and, and Mies and Lawson are, and uh, I am, and Bruce Ackerman is, the deep issue is really about the most important case the Supreme Court ever decided before Marbury versus Madison. It's called Hilton or Hylton. It's discussed in great detail in the book, The Words That Made Us. The Attorney upholding broad taxing power was none other than Alexander Hamilton. The only case he ever argued before the U.S. Supreme Court, he came out of retirement, out of private practice to argue the case at George Washington's special urging and invitation. He won both in substance and in rationale that a unanimous Supreme Court backed him. And a third of our brief, half of our brief is actually based on very tight paraphrase of um, about eight pages or so of the book, The Words That Made Us. So can't wait to do an episode 
on that, Andy, once we file it, we'll of course put it on the show notes, and maybe we'll have, um, maybe we'll do a couple of episodes. Have Vic with me on one episode, and maybe I fly solo in a second. If Steve Calabrese wants to come on and present the other point of view, or Bruce Ackerman, a complimentary point of view, that would, that would all be great. And of course, we did discuss the Halton case. Um, a couple of things about the Halton case. You and I were talking once. Um, about what, uh, in response to a question that I think a listener had, had posed, uh, what moment in Supreme Court history would we like to go back to? And uh, you, you gave an answer. And I, my answer was that I wanted to go back to Hylton um, because there's no record of the details of the oral argument right. um, in that case. I would have loved to have heard uh, Alexander Hamilton argue that case. And also, I would like to know how to pronounce Hylton. <laughs> um, one of my students actually has the answer. I haven't opened up his his email to me, but he actually has some reasons for it. I don't know what his answer is and, and why, but I'll know next week. Also, Andy, we did have another episode, maybe one and a half episodes, all about direct taxes and how they connect. Yeah, we talked to- about Hylton earlier yeah, in, in, yeah. a couple of years ago. Yeah. Um, so you can go back. But, and. And, and, and we and promise now, you this will not be a repetition of no, that No, not, not at all. And this is, in my view, this is the one case, I think, where lots and lots of, maybe there's one or two others this term, lots of academics, quite independently of each other, are perceiving has very important constitutional implications of, of a deep sort. Um, I initially didn't know that Steve Calabresi was filing on the other side, didn't know that Bruce Ackerman was filing, didn't know that David Schizer was filing. Each of us sort of independently of the others is gravitating to this important case and, and our audience, I bet, hasn't heard of it. The oral argument, I think, is set for December 5th. So we'll have some episodes on that, Andy. Yeah. Just a quick question, though. I mean, you know, you t- so we, we mentioned the, the case and now the first thing you say about it is well. Here's this precedent. Okay, so is this and and are there originalist arguments in this case, or is yes. it a case mostly based on precedent? Uh, we ours is an entirely originalist brief, um, and saying, gee, if you're going to rethink Roe, you're going to have to rethink actually for in the name of originalism, you're going to have to rethink some Lochner and Plessy era cases that get the tax power wrong and go back. To first principles, and that would take you back to Hamilton and, and Hylton, mm-hmm. or and, before, the, yeah. and the unanimous Supreme Court and George Washington. Um, well, I think, oh, and we've got I think, we've got Abraham Lincoln on our side too, and the first Justice Harlan, the great dissenter mm-hmm. in Plessy. So great cast of characters in our brief. Okay, well, this may may also give us some information about how to look at originalism, because you know, in in general, if I'm thinking about originalism, I'm not necessarily thinking about a case, I might be thinking about, you know, what went into that case. So, so this will, so this will be interesting. But, okay. But this so is that's, Andy. This is another situation where originalism, honestly done, I think supports today's folks on the political left. Now, mm-hmm. Originalism that won't always do that, but it did in the ISL case, Moore versus Harper, and we think it's do it. It does also in this case support the constitutionality of a wealth tax of the sort that Elizabeth Warren or Bernie Sanders is advocating. Now, now, whether we have it or not, that's a policy matter. But our argument in this brief is that would be constitutional. And of course, you you didn't write amicus briefs for a long time, and now you've started to write them. Um, and I, I guess it's the case that that you're selecting cases that have strong originalist um, overtones because... Uh, 
where we can be genuine. Yes, the idea of a friend of the court is to actually add something that the parties may not be adding. They're not constitutional scholars, always of an uh, originalist sort. They're they're good and smart lawyers. They may know a lot about the precedents, but they may not know a lot about the deep foundations of the anti-ISL theory. They they, they maybe know all about the early state constitutions and New York practice in the 1780s and 90s. They may not know all about Hilton. And in fact, the other briefs in the case aren't talking about this. So a, a good amicus brief isn't a me too brief. It actually adds a different perspective. And I would say a great amicus brief not only adds a different perspective, but brings to bear, if it's written by a scholar, that scholar's expertise on the matter. Yeah. And I think, you know, one of the arguments against originalism, as you have portrayed it even, is that it requires that you know a lot of history and maybe not every, not every justice is, a, is an historian. You're absolutely and right. So this is a you know perhaps another function related function you know that it's not just in a sense constitutional expertise but also historical expertise. It's yes, and if I'm going to advocate originalism and it is hard to do, I should be willing to try to roll up my sleeves and, and help the court and not to advocate my own personal politics, but just to give them the benefit of my um, professional, uh, neutral, uh, de- detached, objective expertise. And that's one of the things that we talked about actually at the ACS event. Uh, in fact, Andy, we talked about originalism, and mm-hmm. and I told them in Moore versus Harper, you know, originalism actually was on the side of the political left, so to speak, and and this is a second example. But yes, it's hard for judges to do this on their own. Maybe it's hard for the Solicitor General's office to do this on its own because they're not filled with a bunch of constitutional historians. Okay, so you know, there's a lot there, but uh, you know, to be continued. Um, now, last week we were talking about what was going on with the speaker, um, and we we titled the episode um, "A Tale of Two Jordans" because, of course, uh, Jim Jordan was involved, but also we we mentioned the the country of Jordan, the area of Jordan, Jordan River, and we're going to be talking about that Jordan, uh, that area of the world as well today, and we're going to relate the two. Um, but and Andy, left, uh, Andy, just on relating the two, because we don't have a speaker, the House is not able to pass a resolution of support, of just moral support, just a non-binding resolution of moral support for our friends in Israel. That's not um, in order at this moment. That's not germane. This, the temporary provisional speaker would not be allowed to entertain that motion, I believe, under the current temporary provisional rules in, in, in place under which that person is wielding the gavel. That's a connection right there. Jim Jordan, I think, is opposed, and at least some of his supporters are opposed to support for Ukraine. And our president, since we last spoke, Andy, linked the issue of Hamas and Israel and Jordan to issues of Putin and Ukraine, made direct links between Hamas and and Putin. And again, under the, the rules in place right now, we, we, we can't have a, a funding bills to support uh, to fund our friends in um, Israel and and Ukraine, and we're going to talk in both cases about borders and and security, iron domes, drones, rockets, all of those things. That's connected to the inability today of the House and the Senate and our lawmaking system generally to to get anything done. These things are linked. 
I wanted to ask you a question about, um, maybe you don't know the answer to it, but um, in our in our episode last week, we talked about, you know, what the House can and can't do on the first day um, of, of a new Congress. And mostly it's what they can't do, which is pretty much anything, you know, until, until they select the speaker. And then organize well, now, themselves and adopt rules, and then they're no longer a mob. They're an assembly. Right. Now they have rules in place, but they don't mm-hmm. have a speaker. Right. And apparently the rules do not allow for the, you know, speaker pro tempore or whatever his, his formal title is, um, Representative uh, McHenry, um, to do much of anything either. Mm-hmm. Um, and they've been talking about, it, it hasn't been gained wide enough spread, widespread enough support among the Republicans, but they were talking about empowering him to do more mm-hmm. in the interim. Yes, um, and now, how exactly would that happen? I mean, you know, if the rules don't allow them to do things, how are they going? The, the only the, thing that I, I could think is if they could make him the speaker temporarily. I think it was William Douglas, who was very much a legal realist, um, a kind of a legal realist. Legal realism could mean different things, but one very crude way to understand legal realism is a school of thought, in the, especially in the 20th century, that denies a super strong distinction between law and politics. William Douglas was a Sterling Professor of Law at Yale Law School, it's the position I currently hold. I'm not the only one. Bruce Ackerman is also a Sterling Professor. There are some others, my, my friend Tony Cronman, my, my friend Harold Coe, and others. So there are several Sterling Professorships of Law at Yale, but, but Bill Douglas was one of them, and then he was later on the Supreme Court. And he very famously said, with five votes, we can do anything. That's different than a quote attributed to William Brennan that said, the most important thing you need to know on the Supreme Court is how to count to five. That's a little different than with five votes, you can do anything. And and you see the kind of the raw legal realism of a Douglas. You can do anything at all. Well, I'm not a total expert on parliamentary procedure, but there are at least two, with a majority, you can do anything in the House, just like, you know, with five votes. Now, there are different ways of structuring the majority. One would be get a majority to make him provisional speaker with more powers than he now has. And maybe you can do that just tomorrow if he simply tells everyone public, it's not embedded in the rules, I promise that I won't hold over longer than 30 days or I won't do this or that or the other thing. And, and when you make that promise, maybe it's not in the rule, but it's going to be hard to go back on it. And now his mandate would only be to do certain things consistent with a certain promise they made. Just like when we talked about 18 arguments for 18 years, we said, well, one of the ways you could operationalize the 18-year idea for Supreme Court justices is they promise to do this as part of their confirmation process. So with a promise, he could get a majority, and with a majority to repeat, just like um, William Douglas, you can do anything. That's one way. A second way would be, even though the, the current rules, I think, don't allow him to do that, he could creatively misinterpret the rule. Someone would challenge that, and then there would be a vote. And once again, if his actions were upheld by a majority, it might be technically an interpretation of the rule, but it's an interpretation of the rule that in effect creates a new rule, but that does so working around the fact that we can't quite, we're not supposed to create a new rule until we have a speaker, you know, uh, first in place. That's actually how filibuster reform worked in, in, in the Senate. They took an existing rule, Senate Rule 22, and they creatively 
reinterpreted it in a certain way. Someone appealed the ruling of the chair and was sustained by a majority. And then going forward, it's Rule 22 as creatively reinterpreted, which is basically with a majority, you can do anything you want. At least for certain. Well, if purposes. they could do that, then why can't they pass the sense of the house about Hamas or, or anything do, else for that matter? They like, could do lots of. Because you just said a few minutes ago they can't do it. I think that, as I said, the way they would need to do it is through either he would have to be willing to actually, frankly, read the rule in an implausible, read the rules existing in an implausible way and be sustained, or I think the safer way to do it. He would simply say, I need to have more powers as provisional speaker. I promise I'll only do this and this and this. And he announces that to the world. And he's, he's actually voted speaker. And whether that's with only Republican votes or with Republican votes and some Democrat votes, the, the Democrats and Republicans, I don't even know if they're talking to each other. But with five, you know, Bill Douglas says you can do anything with five. You know, and with a genuine majority, you can do anything in the house. There are ways of skinning this cat, I believe. That said, Andy, you're right. I'm not as expert on all the parliamentary rules of the house as some others are. But that's the, what I just told you is my best understanding, having read some of the literature on this by people, the people who are, I'm very expert on this, in among con law folks, two Yale graduates in, in particular. Josh Chaffetz, who is at Georgetown, and Aaron Andrew Bruhl. One other person who's rather expert on these things is David Super. I think he's at the University of Maryland. This is not one of my um, specialties, truth be told. I know a little bit about it, but not as much as Aaron Andrew Bruhl and Josh Chaffetz. And, and if these things go on uh, much longer, Andy, maybe we can invite them to join us uh, for a podcast episode. Yeah, I mean, oh boy, I, I really don't like the, um, well, I'm going to pretend that the rule means this, even though I know perfectly well that it doesn't mean that. Right. Um, but, but that's how that, filibuster reform happened, actually. In, in yeah, the, in, I, I in get the it. But, what, but I mean, the slippery slope is so obvious. Um, and uh, talking about now we are a mob. Yeah. Um, and, and In fact, you're right. And in the Senate, there was a genuinely a formal legalist leg to stand on. If Rule 22 did not allow this, the existing rule, it would be unconstitutional because it would mm -hmm. actually frustrate majority rule in every right. respect. But, Fine. but the, the, so the deep idea, the deep idea is actually Douglas's idea. There has to be some way that the meta constitutional principle is there has to be some way for a majority to work its will. Um, maybe it has to do it this way rather than that way, but there has to be at least one way at all times that a majority can actually do. Uh, and that's because lex majoris partis is the natural law of all societies that don't have a, a, a different rule. That's a line directly from John Locke's second treatise of government. Um, yeah, you know, I hear you on that and I, and I agree, but that's why... You know, I think it makes sense when you get to things like, okay, you know, the vice president can't preside in their in their own impeachment trial or something like that. And then there has to be a solution to that. Okay. Um, but here there already is a solution. Get a speaker. Yes. Vote for a speaker. Well, you and have I a said, solution. And I, so and you I said we could do that. Right. Right. You, right. you don't That's need an I, extra constitutional way of of getting around it. Just get a speaker. Well, so given that you have that way to get this bogus way 
strikes me as, as a principle wrinkle. doesn't really apply. In my but here's the wrinkle. Because the new speaker would not yet be bound by new rules, the constraints on the speaker, because they don't want to make him speaker for all purposes and all respects, I think would need to be informally achieved by his publicly saying, even though formally you just made me speaker, I promise I won't hold over for more than X number of days and I'll only bring the following three resolutions to the floor without getting a renewed vote from you or not. But none of those would need to be embedded in a rule. He could just embed those in a speech Yeah, I think that's perfectly fine if you... That, but in order to do that, you would have to name him not Speaker Pro Tempore with yeah. promise, but rather Speaker right. He'd with be promise speaker, to step right. down. Right, but right. He, he, you know, so that's why there, there are ways of doing this, but even yeah. that is... And, and they now weren't you see- talking about doing that. Here's my point, okay? This is what was behind this question. They weren't talking about making him the full-fledged speaker. They were saying, let's just enlarge his powers as speaker pro tempore. I don't see how they could do that without, you know, without naming him the speaker first. And they weren't talking about doing that. So this struck well, me as bogus. Right. Well, we should, anyway, we should, I'd, like to, we, I'd like to get an answer to that at some right. point. The final point is we, to, to give a full enter, we want to know the precedence of the house. There's a whole multi-volume treatise by a person named Hines. They're called precedent, uh, H-I-N-D-S, precedence house. And the people who know Hines backwards and forwards are people like Josh Chaffetz and Aaron Andrew Brule. So the, those, are the, those are the people that would... Look, in this podcast, we try often to tell our audience who really knows their stuff and, and who's just you know blowing smoke. On this, I don't know my stuff as well as those two do. So if this continues, we should, we should bring them on. Yeah, I mean, we did talk, and we should move on, but we did talk about what might be a precedent of the House last time, which was the, this business with John Quincy Adams. Now, in that yes. case, yes. what happened was the House... Uh, acted by acclamation. Now we're not talking here about acclam- uh, far from it, yes. right? So, so perhaps they could do it by acclamation, but but they, uh, you know, they and there's a precedent for that. Although the 1867 statute wasn't in effect then, so maybe yeah. it's. Uh, but anyway, but, okay. but John Quincy Adams did take the bull by the horns, at least you know in in, in the first instance, and just sort of improvise. Yes, and by the way, audience. Um, you know, if you saw the, the if, if you didn't listen to the last episode and you're interested uh, in what we just said, um, this illustrates something that we've been doing again, which is we've been putting clips up on Instagram um, of sort of highlights of the episode, like a teaser clip to get you to, you know, people that, that just might encounter us on Instagram and don't know about the podcast. But um, I encourage you to follow America's Constitution on Instagram. And we've been putting these these clips up and they're fun. They have a little... It, I, I won't say it's the most scintillating video in the world since it's just Akil and I with books behind us, but um, but they're closed captioned and you can read them. And, and we do tell the story, Lastrick or Akil tells the story of John Quincy Adams in the Instagram clip. So check out those clips. And also our, our Twitter feed is also a little more active uh, these days as well. Um, so there's information on that and there's information as well on the uh, continuing legal education uh, opportunities that you have for this episode and others. And now we have some back catalog episodes that are up for, including um, uh, Woe is Roe, which is one of our episodes about about Roe versus Wade, and Search a Lago, which is a great uh, Fourth Amendment uh, uh, episode. We, we talked about some of the issues involved with the searches at, uh, at Mar-a-Lago. 
and the two episodes with uh, Will Bode and Mike Paulson um, are, are about uh, the 14th Amendment, Section 3, are also up. So, you know, and we'll be reading the code later in this episode to let you know uh, how you can get your continuing legal education. But speaking of uh, Will Bode and Mike Paulson, we left uh, a, a thread hanging uh, in the last episode about uh, Jim Jordan, which has to do with, even if, now, of course, he's, He's no longer the Republican nominee for speaker, the conference nominee for speaker at this point. Um, but nevertheless, the, uh, even with some of the people that have declared themselves candidate for, for candidates for speaker, this might come up as well. Um, the questions of whether they are even eligible for this position because of actions that they've taken that might be construed as violations uh, as making them enemies of the Constitution and therefore ineligible for certain positions under the 14th Amendment, Section 3. So, um, what? first of all, Akil, you know, when we were talking about Jim Jordan, you were saying, you, you thought that he might be, you know, one of the more prominent examples of someone that might be ineligible um, among, among people in the House. So, which actions of his um, do you think are relevant to that uh, question. Maybe you don't know all of them, but which ones stand out in your mind? So someone could say, Akil, what the hell are you talking about? He's a member of the House, and if he were ineligible under Section 3 of the 14th Amendment, why is he a member of the House? Let me take you back to what Will and Mike said. Only certain people are relevant decision makers. If you're Secretary of elections in a given state and you decide who's on the ballot and you're empowered by state law to um, withhold a person's name from the ballot if they're not 35 or if they've already been elected president twice or they're not a citizen or they're not a natural born citizen. If you're in that legal position where you, where the law has actually given you certain authority to not put someone on the ballot if they're not constitutionally eligible, then maybe it's your call. Whichever way you make it, you can get sued. If you actually put the name on, then opponents may sue you. If you keep the name off, the the candidate whom you're excluding may sue you. But it's your affirmative call. You have to do something. And if the state law says, and in some states apparently the law does say, don't put a name on the ballot if they're not constitutionally eligible, it's your call. Now, Take that Will Bode, Mike Paulson argument, which is from our episodes, and you can get CLE credit from listening to them even if you now, even if you didn't listen to them way back when. Let's apply that to Jim Jordan. Okay. He actually was certified to have been regularly elected on day one. And so he's now sitting. And no person, someone in the house who thinks that Jordan shouldn't be sitting could move to exclude him, saying he's ineligible, but the default principle is they they do nothing at all. They're not voting one way or another on it. It just doesn't come up. And so you could just say, look, unless there's a motion to exclude, it's, it's not my obligation. But if I have to affirmatively vote for Jim Jordan for some purpose, I have to, because I've taken my own oath, I have to actually follow section Three of the 14th Amendment. Now, here's how the argument would work. If I believe that you can't be speaker without being a member, 
And there are lots of people who do believe that. We've never had a speaker who wasn't a member either, either of Congress or of Parliament you know, uh, for hundreds of years. If you think that a speaker of the House needs to be a speaker from the House, and, and you might not. There, there are people who somehow think that Donald Trump could be speaker or Liz Cheney or whatever. Um, even though Lee Zeldin one... got four votes for for speaker, and he's not a member of the House. Okay, so so, so there's an, there's an issue, but but that would go against hundreds of years of parliamentary tradition and congressional tradition. But if you think actually no, speaker of the House needs to be a speaker from the House, then by affirmatively voting for Jordan, you're really, you know, attesting, certifying that he's constitutionally eligible as you read section three of the 14th Amendment. You're doing an affirmative thing as opposed to just doing nothing at all. Now, why might you think that he's actually ineligible? And if you do, you, your theory might be technically he's actually ineligible to be a member as well as being speaker. And here's why. Because on January 6th, he had a 10-minute conversation with Donald Trump, and we don't know what happened in that conversation. And also, and maybe he's aiding and abetting, you know, an insurrection by encouraging. And and beforehand he was doing all sorts of things, and after January sixth he was doing all sorts of things. And even if he himself did not storm the Capitol building, he was already in it as a, a duly elected member. He gave aid and comfort to an actual insurrection based on things he did before January sixth. Did, said and did, things he said in a conversation, and we don't have the contents, to Donald Trump, a 10-minute conversation on January 6th, things he said afterwards. Now, it's, it's one thing to say, oh, there are questions. It's nothing to, to prove it. Um, there were committee hearings, and Jim Jordan actually obstructed those hearings. He didn't actually respond to subpoenas and all the rest. And, and it, it's a perfect evidentiary presumption. It's permitted in all sorts of contexts. If someone refuses to give certain information then they, that they have access to, you're allowed, not in a criminal case because of Fifth Amendment self-incrimination, and we had an episode on that, but in all sorts of other cases, you are permitted to draw adverse inferences against someone if they refuse to give inf- answer questions and give information that they have. So if you say to someone in a non-criminal context, well, did you steal that last piece of chocolate cake? And they say, I did not, you know, and they said, and not, not steal, but pill, pill for it, you know, just, and did you leave the garage door open? And you ignorantly say, you know, I, of course I didn't do that. Okay. And did you leave the refrigerator door open? You say, I refuse to say. <laughs> okay. Okay. Well, okay. Um, I can draw a certain inference. You know, I deny this and I deny that I didn't do this. I, you know, I, I didn't beat my wife. I didn't beat my children. Oh, but I beat the dog. <laughs> I refuse to say, okay. Did you beat your wife? No. Did you beat your children? No, never. Did you ever, have you ever beaten the dog? I'm not saying. Okay. Again, in criminal case, we don't draw adverse inferences against someone merely for silence. And we had episodes about why that's so on Fifth Amendment self-incrimination clause, but this wasn't a criminal proceeding. Jordan was asked to provide all sorts of information by the January 6th committee. He refused to do it. Those would be, I think, permissible bases upon which to say, I think net-net that he gave aid and comfort to an insurrection, is therefore ineligible to be a member of the House, and is therefore ineligible to be Speaker, and at the very least, I can't vote for him for Speaker and be true to my own oath. That would be the argument. 
Okay, so very interesting. Now, of course, this didn't really come up. Maybe it should have come up. Yes. And 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 maybe why aren't the Democrats bringing this up? You know, during the. because they're guess not they listening figured- to this podcast, apparently. But now they, you know, now they should be bringing. Because Andy, you're right. It might be relevant of the nine names that are circulating as of this nanosecond. We're recording the Sunday evening. Several of them were strong allies of the January six insurrectionists from a certain point of view. Many, most of them refused to certify Joe Biden's election. Most of them. Yeah, at least eight of them did. At least eight of them refused um, to, in terms of their vote. So mm-hmm. there you go. I mean, now and that, that doesn't it, necessarily mean that that's yeah. the same test as uh, giving right. aid and comforts to insurrectionists, but but it's at least interesting and suggestive. Mm-hmm. Yes. Um, but of of them all, the person that, according to the press, was closest to Trump, both before and after, on this stop the steal election denialism was Jim Jordan. And he did, I think this is uh, uncontroverted, speak to Donald Trump uh, early in the day of January 6th for 10 minutes, and we don't know what was said. Mm -hmm. Okay. Now, um, of course, there was, as I said, he's now no longer the, um, the nominee of the conference, Republican conference, but there were a lot of articles about him leading up to the votes and that sort of thing. And we, we read about his history as a wrestler uh, and, and things like that. And he certainly came across as a, uh, perhaps not the a candidate for speaker that would be a great compromiser or something like that. His style was a, uh, a perhaps one might term it as almost a violent style pugilistic, very aggressive, very macho. So two or three things. One, apparently there is either no or virtually no important piece of legislation associated with his service in the House. And the basic job of the Speaker isn't just to stop things from happening, but also to affirmatively do things. There are constitutional requirements, for example, that the Army must affirmatively be funded Every Congress, every two years, you have to get that bill through. And if you don't know how to get bills through because you have no experience getting bills through, you know, are you really the person for the job? Okay, that's one point. The job of the speaker isn't just to say no and to to throw bombs and to block things, but certain things have to be done. We have to have a census every 10 years. You know, the government debts must be paid and government must be funded in various ways. So that's one point that he really doesn't have, if we were a serious hiring committee, we'd say, you really do not have much expertise, you know, much experience for this part of the job. Now, there's a second point, which is people who supported him were bullying in various ways other members of the House, sending um, uh, sending them threatening messages, leaving threatening voicemails on telephones, and not just members, but their spouses. And Jordan eventually disavowed some of these tactics, but he enabled them by insisting, for example, that everyone go home to their district over the weekend rather than staying there and keep voting and getting the job done. That gave him an opportunity to whip up his allies in the media, on radio and elsewhere, who in turn, and on social media, radio especially, tried to whip people up. 
is that fairly attributable to him, some of these bullying tactics? That's another question. Politics ain't beanbag, and there's a reason, Andy, we call them whips. Okay, this is a word that goes back hundreds of years, and they do try to whip people into line and arm twist, not just cajole, but arm twist in various ways. Did he and his allies really cross the line? And if his allies did, is this fair to attribute to him? And Andy, we gave a big shout out in our last episode to our friend Joanne Freeman, who writes this amazing book, Field of Blood, all about violence and bullying and worse on the floor of the House of Representatives and the Senate in the antebellum period, especially in the 1840s and 50s. And this has a certain history in America, and it's a regional history. It's Southern bullying of Yankees, frankly, if you will, conservative bullying of of liberals. And so this has a certain history. And Joanne's book, Field of Blood, which is an outstanding book, chronicles that. So I think that's relevant even more today than last time because we have, since our last episode, seen reports of bullying. Yeah, I mean, that book, I've read, I've read it. Um, I mentioned it last time because of the, we were talking about the clerk of the house. Right. Um, and, uh, Who was otherwise a you know, ministerial figure, but plays a, a role. Right. So we talked about it last time in connection with the clerk. Now we're talking about it for a different point, point about yes. bullying and violence. Field of Blood, that's the title of the book. Yeah, I mean, most people or many people know about Preston Brooks. And we talked about that on Charles Sumner. Um, and we and the, the caning before, the, the, of, of right, Charles Sumner, of, the bludgeoning of right. Charles Sumner. And I thought when I, you know, I thought I knew something, and and I thought, oh, I know about the caning of Charles Sumner. I know about this one episode of violence uh, in Congress, and it was in the Senate. But anyway, um, but it turns out there were hundreds mm-hmm. of episodes of violence. In, mm-hmm. in, the, in, in and, Congress. And, Amazing. And, and, and violence, even though it was in the Senate chamber, was perpetrated by a House member, by mm-hmm. you know an aggressive, macho House member. There was a caning. He smashed, he's thwacking a, a fellow's skull. And Charles Sumner was out of commission for, I think, two years, maybe three after that. He brought another member of the House with him, who brandished a pistol, a firearm to prevent other senators from intervening, and people are bringing weapons into the chambers. Uh, these are House members themselves, senators themselves. So a really eye-opening account of all sorts of violent encounters beyond the famous duel um, between Burr and Hamilton, which was the mm-hmm. subject of um, Joanne's earlier book called Affairs of Honor. Mm. Now, of course, you Charles Sumner is going to be an important figure, I think, in your new book. Of course, the book isn't out yet. It's not going to be out till probably next year sometime or even after. But um, it's volume two in, the, in your series of three books on America's constitutional conversation. First book was The Words That Made Us, um, which talked about 1760 to 1840. Now we've got 1840 to 1920 in this second volume, tentatively titled uh, born equal. But there's a lot of other things in that book um, that I think we've heard echoes of in recent days. Yes. Um, what, why don't you tell me about some of them? So the big theme of the words that made us is how America becomes America. It, um, it's about how we, the people of the United States, form. So that's one way of reading us. And another way, is, it's a pun, is um, the words that made the U.S. us. 
So how did the United States unite? How did we, the people of the United States, become a people? Because at the beginning of volume one um, of this um, hoped-for three-volume trilogy, America's Constitutional Conversation, really from 1760 to the present moment, um, at the beginning, there's not an us. There are disparate colonies um, who don't have a shared national identity, and they're um, Puritans up in Boston and slavocrats in South Carolina, and they don't talk to each other much and don't interact much, and they happen to be geographically contiguous, but really in 1760, they're, they're just colonies of, of Britain. They have a common crown, but no strong identity among themselves. This would be, they would be not altogether different than um, the British Commonwealth in 1930. There's India, there's Kenya, there's Canada, there's Australia, there's Ireland, but they don't have much of a sense of common identity, even if they have a common crown. Well, that's Massachusetts and New York and Virginia and South Carolina in 1760. So volume one is how and why did we become a we? And the big argument in volume one, which I'm continuing in volume two, is we became a we for national security geostrategic reasons because we're all being oppressed by the British Empire and we have to unite or die. British Empire is three times as big in population, white population, free population, not counting Ireland. And in economic clout, it's probably five or six times as powerful. Maybe it's you know tw- twice as much per capita economically and three times as populous, not counting Ireland. Massachusetts alone doesn't stand a chance. Um, against Britain, much less Rhode Island. It's only by uniting do Americans even stand a fighting chance. And and then they have a chance because of this massive moat called the Atlantic Ocean, because it's hard for Britain to project power 3,000 miles away from London. So that's volume one. And all of that, Andy, is going to be continued in volume two. And, and, the, and the system breaks up because Massachusetts and South Carolina actually didn't have a lot in common. And, and, and that's going to lead to these episodes in the 1850s and 60s. Preston Brooks is a South Carolinian attacking a Massachusetts guy, caning him. And that's going to lead to a civil war. And that's what we're going to talk about. And finally, Andy, all that is not unconnected to Iron Dome in Israel and drones and rockets in Ukraine and Russia. And these are things that our president connected since you and I last spoke, um, Joe Biden, connecting these issues in the Ukraine and the Middle East to, um, to each other. And all of these connect actually deeply to issues in American history and the American Constitutional Project. So I, I want to talk about, you know, two ways that I think this, um, this is important and two ways why we should be paying attention to what Akhil Amar has to say about it. Because, you know, one might say, well, okay, yeah, we, we borders matter and, you know, we have two oceans and, okay, that's great, good point. Um, what did, why do we need a constitutional scholar to tell us about that? How is this a new idea in constitutional law? What's new about that and, what, and why is it relevant to, let's say, maybe a grand narrative of constitutional law. 
So I didn't realize this when I composed a book 20 years ago called uh, America's Constitutional Biography, an idea that I build upon in the words that made us and that I'm building upon further in the sequel, Born Equal, and the hoped for volume three, which is tentatively going to be entitled, I think, um, Earth's Best Hope. So I didn't really realize, oh, I'm not just saying this or that or the other thing. I actually have a fundamentally different big picture story about the Constitution. I think there are about four or so that are out there. At the founding and really for the first several generations, the story that dominates is associated, I would say, especially with a scholar named Bancroft. And it's America's almost divinely inspired, providentially blessed. Um, And it's just a a bold and brave people prevailing in the world, manifesting their destiny. And I think there's a lot that's true about this. It's it's democratic and free, admirable, and people from the rest of the world want to come here. It doesn't tend to talk very much about slavery, doesn't tend to talk very much about uh, the dispossession of uh, native tribes. It's a very self-congratulatory story. It's true to an important extent, I think. But it's ripe for debunking, and the progressives come along at the end of the 1800s, the beginning of the 20th century, especially a man named Charles Beard, and he offers the next big narrative, which is, no, basically the Constitution was an anti-democratic project of, by, and for the 1%, the fat cats. A revolutionary general, a, a general meeting with a bunch of plutocrats behind closed doors and violating the rules, their instructions that they had been given, foist upon America a constitution that's of, by, and for the 1%. It, it creates a very powerful Supreme Court that's very um, far removed from the people. The Electoral College is creates a president who's not directly elected. They impose all sorts of limits on what states can do to redistribute. This is a response to the democratic excesses uh, that the elites perceive that have been unleashed by the American Revolution. It's a response to Shays' Rebellion and the like, and it's siding against the farmers and in favor of the creditor class. This is the basic thesis. I'm simplifying and exaggerating just a bit, put forth by Charles Beard in his book, An Economic Interpretation of the Constitution. So that's the second narrative, and it's a debunking narrative. It doesn't talk very much about slavery, actually. It doesn't talk very much about Native Americans. It doesn't, definitely doesn't talk about national security. In my lifetime, your lifetime, it's popularized by people like Howard Zinn and in the movies, Matt Damon. Gordon Wood comes along. Our great friend Gordon Wood, he's been on this podcast. We're doing Every Scholar. We've done Every Scholar events with him. We're doing Every Scholar events in the months ahead with him. And he offers a, a different and third narrative. Joined by people like Bernard Balin, there are others. Ed Morgan is a part of a re- reconsideration. Um, so is Douglas Adair. So is Jack Rakoff. These folks say it's not really about what's in your wallet. The American Revolution is about ideas, um, and the Constitution is about ideas. But the ideas are to, um, and they're not anti-self-government, but they do think democracy of a majoritarian sort is unstable, and they're trying to give a little more stability to the project. They're trying to create republics as opposed to democracies. And Federalist 10 is important in their narrative as it was for Beard, but for Beard it was all about class issues. And for these folks, it's about 
ideas by people who really do believe in self-government, but think that states have gone too far in various ways. It doesn't talk a lot about slavery, truth be told. It doesn't talk a lot about Native Americans. Um, I think it gets some things right. It explains Article 1, Section 10, and limits on what states can do. They can't have paper money and can't make something other than gold or silver, uh, legal tender, and, and the rest. But mine is a different narrative. If there's the Bancroft narrative, the Beard narrative, and the Wood narrative, mine is fundamentally a national security narrative. It's more like Bancroft. Mine is a, a narrative that's focusing more on national security like Bancroft, but I'm saying, oh, it's democratic. They put the thing to a vote. And yeah, Philadelphia was secret, but not after the convention, only during the convention. Oh, and more people got to vote than ever before. And there was free speech and you could oppose the constitution and you wouldn't be voted off the island. Um, and you can get to vote for the House of Representatives, which you couldn't get to do under the Articles of Confederation. So it's way more democratic than the Beardians. Um, and even the Wood folks are acknowledging. But it's also about national security geostrategy, and it's pro-slavery in certain respects too. And it's going to be a project in which the Native American tribes are, are losers, and at least in the South, Blacks may be losers, not in the North. Abolition is introduced in the North, but the Three-Fifths Clause is a big advantage for the South. A fugitive Slave Clause is an accommodation of the South. The direct tax clause is an accommodation of Southern slavery. That's actually the, the, the brief that Vic and I are filing in the, the Moore case this week. So it's a fundamentally different narrative. Three prongs, more democratic than you've understood, than, than even Wood acknowledges, definitely than Beard acknowledges, more pro-slavery than we've admitted, and more about national security and geostrategy. It's a kind of Andrew Jackson. It's not a constitution. It's not a surprise that Andrew Jackson is the dominant political figure after the founding and before Lincoln, because he's a small D Democrat, capital D Democrat, man of the people, but pro-slavery, it's for white people, and fiercely anti-British, fiercely about national security, and a unite or die vision in which, yes, America's leaders are people need to be able to defeat the, the, the Brits. And frankly, if necessary, beat the Spanish and the French and the Mexicans, the Canadians and Native Americans and anyone else who gets in the way of U.S. of A. And what does that have to do, though, with constitutional law? So in other words, what, can you give me an example of where it matters, which narrative is correct, in, in, in the way that we approach interpreting the Constitution? Let's take the Moore case. If you think that American Revolution is all about just protecting property, and you think taxation reaches into people's pockets, and you say, oh, the American Revolution is about, it's an anti-tax revolution, I think you'd be misinterpreting it. It's no taxation without representation. And the Constitution, because it provides for representation, provides for taxation of individuals. And you'd think, actually, um, the Constitution provides for wide tax power. Why? Because you need taxes to fund an army, and without an army, you're dead. Okay? It directly connects to the brief that Vic and I just filed. If you have a libertarian view of the Constitution, you're skeptical of taxation. If you have a national security, Hamiltonian view of the Constitution, you don't. What's the direct tax clause all about? Akil and Vic in this brief say, oh, it's all about 
slavery. And it shouldn't be these direct tax rules, which limit the taxing power of the federal government, they require apportionment of certain kinds of taxes, should not be broadly read because they were part of a stinky pro-slavery compromise that was fundamentally repudiated by the Civil War and its amendments. Now, in this brief that Vic and I have filed, we say, oh, in, in the Hylton case, Justice Patterson, who was a delegate at Philadelphia, says just that. Oh, and after the Civil War, the first Justice Harlan, the great dissenter in Plessy versus Ferguson, says just that in a big tax case called Pollock. He's in dissent, is first Justice Harlan in both cases, and Plessy is wrong, and so is Pollock wrong. And it matters in this brief today whether Pollock was right or wrong, and Pollock, I promise you, words like slavery appear prominently in Justice Harlan's dissent in Pollock. Word like slavery appears prominently in the Hilton case. So Akeel's argument is actually, I mean, Andy, we didn't pre-rehearse this, but oh, it's very relevant. Not just how you interpret, but what the Constitution says pretty plainly, so plainly that it doesn't even require interpretation. The army has to be funded every two years, but not the Navy, because the framers were more skeptical of armies which could be used to suppress people domestically. And one of the things they were trying to do is if they could unite, not only are they protecting America against Britain and you can hide behind a moat, but we can therefore rely on a Navy and navies are less threatening to liberty because they can only pound a coastline. The constitution also says states can't keep troops. We don't want actually armed camps between South Carolina and North Carolina, or North Carolina and Virginia, or Virginia and Maryland, or Maryland and Pennsylvania. Certain things that are just absolutely crystal clear. States can't keep troops without federal approval. Armies have to be authorized every two years, but not navies. My theory of the Constitution explains these provisions in a way that, for example, the, the, the Gordon Wood theory doesn't. And how is that relevant to the other Jordan? Because damn it, we actually can't, aren't passing. The House isn't open for business to pass resolutions that include funding the army. Okay? So these things are connected. My theory is relevant both to explaining what the Constitution really clearly does say and why, differences between armies and navies, certain rules about state troops, but also where there are possibly different interpretations. What's a direct tax? What's the purpose of the tax power? It's relevant to interpretation, contested interpretation in really big cases today, like the Moore case, which I think is all about Hilton. Now, in your second volume, obviously, we're, we're moving on here. And, you know, here you're talking about the founding, and Hilton or Halton is an, is an early case before 1800. Um, now, it seems to me two of the, you know, the big developments, if I'm thinking about 1840 and the period after that, you know, two things that I'm thinking about are kind of the march westward. Yes. Things like the Mexican War and... Uh, acquisition of California and and uh, even northern borders, you know, and things like that. And then, of course, secession, uh, slavery, and the Civil War. Right. And so, um, presumably, you address these th- these things in your book. Do you feel that your your overall narrative 
um, has something to say on those matters? I do. And with your permission, I'm going to read a few pages um, and you can interrupt me. This is from the new book where I'm summarizing the old book. And I, th I think in a better way than I've ever done before and anticipating in this chapter, Lincoln's arguments, they're going to be borders. The question is, are they defensible borders? I explain in this book why the 49th parallel is a defensible and sensible border between the United States and Canada, but it's actually not very sensible to draw a line between Chicago and New Orleans because of certain river systems and, and other things. The Rio Grande, yes, that's a, that's a sensible border where America ends and another regime begins. But Lincoln says, oh, you can't have a sensible border somewhere between Chicago and Memphis for example, or between Memphis and, and New Orleans. So uh, let me read you just a few of these passages because I'm continuing this geostrategic story. And that's what they're talking about in the Middle East. You know, um, are, what, what are defensible borders? How to think about the West Bank, how to think about the Gaza Strip, you know, how to think about in Europe, uh, Crimea and Ukraine. And Joe Biden is connecting all these issues in his address to all Americans, but they're about borders. And Europe today is much more free and safe than it used to be because it united in a certain way after World War II via NATO in an antebellum U.S. kind of way. Joe Biden talked about how small countries are very vulnerable if they stand alone and aren't part of a larger defense system. He mentioned Latvia, Lithuania, and Estonia. So, so all this stuff is actually relevant. And if Congress isn't open, it can't actually you know, um, fund freedom, whether we're talking about an iron dome in Israel or sending rockets and drones to Ukraine. And America needs defensible borders, but so do our friends in Israel, at least the, be the best they can manage given their different place in the world. So do our friends in Ukraine. These are connected. And if Americans don't understand that our own constitution is about these things. We're going to be missing things about other countries in our world today and our obligations to try to help other nations achieve what we've achieved. You know, it's um, interesting because because uh, some someone that might want to respond to that might say, well, all right, early on, what about George Washington's farewell address? Yes. Right? And and we're going to... We're going to talk about American isolationism, and, and, and Joe Biden talked about all that. So first, let me actually just tell you, read a few passages from yes. But the, the point I wanted to make about the farewell address, which, uh -huh. you, which you cover in, in the words it made us, is that you know, we're taught in school that it's about don't make alliances. Mm -hmm. But in fact, if you read it, which we had the opportunity to do recently in a uh, Ever Scholar course on statesmanship. Actually, Rick Brookheiser led a session on George Washington and assigned the farewell address, among other things. And really, it's more about union. It's really more oh, about it stay together. It, it, it um, absolutely, that's what, that's what it centrally is. But also, our position in the world really dramatically changes, in, especially in the 20th century, and that's the volume that I have yet to write called Earth's Best Hope. When we move from isolationism, the, the third book will begin in 1920 and the rejection of the League of Nations. And it's going to go through then a series of experiences in which we realize that we, we can't just forget about Europe and the rest of the world. Um, and that's going to be World War II and a Cold War and, and other things. So we're part of the world now in a way that we weren't quite in the age of 
of Washington when we did hide behind our moats to a certain extent. These passages I'm going to read are really, they're from the, the book I'm working on now, and they look back to toward volume one and tell you what the story of America really is. So, and just, so Andy, this is a, a treat for our audience. This is, this is um, you know, the yet unpublished, yet unfinished. And who knows, these words may change yes. <laughs> by the time it gets yes. published. But, but you, have, you have read them, and they've passed mm-hmm. your initial white glove, and we're going to revise them, of course. But this is from a chapter called California and Texas, which is all about the, the, the boundaries and the borders. This is actually a little subsection called Maps. The United States of America began as a military arrangement, a geography-driven alliance of convenience among 13 smallish and previously separate mainland British colonies. In 1776, these 13 provinces, although legally distinct and culturally dissimilar, especially on slavery-related issues, had to join or die. Only a united military and diplomatic effort could defeat America's British overlords and win independence for all 13, whose combined free population amounted to a mere quarter of Britons, not counting Ireland. In, 18, in 1787 to 88, Americans retooled their fledgling union and committed themselves to a legally indivisible continental system. Once again, geography and military necessity compelled them to unite, this time far more tightly and permanently via a legal merger slash marriage, emphatically prohibiting any attempted subsequent unilateral dissolution. During a year-long experience, which Americans up and down the continent intensely debated the proposed constitution, no leading federalist and no state ratifying convention ever embraced any legal right of unilateral secession. Rather, Continentalists such as George Washington, Alexander Hamilton, and James Madison loudly and repeatedly insisted that the document drafted at Philadelphia, in Philadelphia meant what it said. Once ratified, the Constitution would be, in the words of the document's emphatic supremacy clause, the supreme law of the land, regardless of anything that any given state might try to unilaterally say or do. The word land in this key clause is revealing for the deep logic underlying the Constitution's Supremacy Clause, underlying the Constitution more generally, was geographic. Each of the 13 original states shared a land border with at least one other state. Each state also occupied a stretch of Atlantic coastline. Were any state to retain a legal right to secede in the future, it could at any moment lawfully opt to open its coasts to Britain's military or to the military of any other powerful European monarchy, for that matter. This foreign military could then use the seceding state as a potentially devastating land base for armed aggression against the Union's remaining states. Such aggression could quite imaginably culminate in the complete destruction of America as an independent, self-governing land. By agreeing to the Constitution, the people of each ratifying state squarely relinquished any future legal rights to do such a murderous and reprehensible thing. So you're seeing now how I'm linking back to the founding and anticipating Lincoln's argument um, in the 1860s that um, the South can't leave because if it could leave unilaterally, it could ally the next day with any European power and threaten everyone else in America. Well, you know, that's true, of course, um, but... I mean, most of the world doesn't have the advantage of 
two oceans, and yet states seem to, you know, manage to survive. So, you know, the fact that you might that you have a border with a, with another country um, doesn't seem, in and of itself, fatal. And the United States had borders, even uh, you know, they had a border with Canada, which which is a, a British colony at, so the, let, so, at the so, time. So, so taking the words right out of my mouth, let me give you two more paragraphs just a, a page later in, in the project. Because today's world is so different than the founder's world. Maps of Europe, Asia, and Africa in particular told a remarkable story. Throughout the late 18th century, only two advanced nations outside the Americas, Switzerland and Britain, could claim extant and enduring regimes of freedom and robust self-government. Why these two? Because, argued Publius in several key Federalist essays, these two nations had militarily defensible borders. Switzerland had inherited, or so it appeared, a God-given rampart, the Great Wall of the Alps. Britain had seemingly lucked upon a natural moat, the English Channel. American, early American leaders could not replicate the Alps. But if Americans formed a perfect and indissoluble union a more perfect and indissoluble union, they could create a kind of island nation reminiscent of Britain. Indeed, they could better Britain in certain respects. America's moat, the 3,000-mile-wide Atlantic Ocean, would hinder potential European naval invasions far more powerfully than could Britain's moat, the 150-mile-wide English Channel. Um, Now, what I then go on to say, and this is your point, The 1787 American Union could never perfectly replicate the 1707 British Union because land borders of some sort seemed unavoidable on America's northern and southern and western, question mark, flanks. But so long as these land borders lay far from America's main population and economic centers, concentrated as these centers were along the Atlantic coast, such borders could accommodate a British-emulating and liberty-loving Republican regime relying on professional sailors and local amateur militias for homeland security while disdaining large standing armies. And then the next several pages explain that the Maine border works pretty well because above Maine, there are hundreds of miles of, of forest and you can't easily invade from Nova Scotia or Quebec. And the southern border in Georgia works pretty well because below that it's all swampland. And again, you can't easily stage a land invasion from Florida. In the back country, I talk about the border as well. I go on to explain, and this isn't just about military defensibility, but commercial efficiency and connectedness, that if America can have the entire, and it, and it does, um, have the entire Mississippi River Basin from source to mouth, in every direction, that's really powerful because you can't be cut off from the rest of the world by an international border or trade embargoes and things like that. If you're Abraham Lincoln, the only thing that you've got in Illinois is land, and you can turn it into corn, but that corn needs to get to market, and you've got to go through New Orleans. You have to have farm implements, and you've got to be able to import things up through New Orleans. There are only two countries in the world, Andy, that have massive river systems that are entirely within their, with the borders of, of one country. That, that's not the Nile. That's not the Amazon. That's not the Danube. It's just the Mississippi River system in America 
and the Yangtze in China. Above the 49th parallel, which is the border between the United States and and Canada, there are no tributaries of the Mississippi. Um, The upper Mississippi ends in, in northern Minnesota. So that's a sensible border, and Lincoln explains that. But here's what's not a sensible border, a border between Chicago and, and, and Memphis, or between Memphis and New Orleans. Can, if, you, if you let me, this is from my first book, I'll read you one paragraph from Lincoln. And interestingly, he's talking about border walls. And this is from his inaugural address, and it's so important to Lincoln, he repeats it in his first special session address to Congress. going to take a moment now, and for the, our listeners who are uh, pursuing continuing legal education from this podcast, I'm going to give you the, the code. Um, the code for this episode is diplomacy. <laughs> diplomacy. D-I-P-L-O-M-A-C-Y. Now, the code is not case-sensitive, so you can capitalize it or not either way. And of course, where do you use that code? You use it by going to podcast.njsba.com. NJSBA stands for New Jersey State Bar Association. Podcast.njsba.com. You fill out the form, you enter the code diplomacy, and you're on your way to getting continuing legal education credit. Andy, do we come up with these um, uh, code words, or they they give it to us? No, Lisa. Lisa did. But, but because they're, 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 it's like as if they're reading our mind. Because what we're talking about is not unrelated. Okay, so this is Abraham Lincoln in his inaugural address, explaining to his fellow Americans why unilateral secession is not permitted. Physically speaking, we cannot separate. We cannot remove our respective sections from each other, nor build an impassable wall between them. A husband and wife may be divorced and go out of the presence and beyond the reach of each other, but the different parts of our country cannot do this. They cannot but remain face to face. An intercourse, either amicable or hostile, must continue between them. Is it possible then to make that intercourse more advantageous or more satisfactory after separation than before? Can aliens make treaties easier than friends can make laws? Can treaties be more faithfully enforced between aliens than laws can among friends? Now, here's one other passage then. Um, And this is from his second message. To Um, Congress. Yes. The great, so it's the equivalent of the State of the Union. Exactly. The great interior region of America has no seacoast. And by that he means the Midwest, where he's from. The great interior region of America has no seacoast, touches no ocean anywhere. As part of one nation, his people now find and may forever find their way to Europe by New York, to South America and Africa by New Orleans, and to Asia by South by San Francisco, but separate our common country into two nations as designed by the present rebellion, and every man of this great interior region is thereby cut off from some one or more of these outlets, not perhaps by a physical barrier, but by embarrassing and onerous trade regulations. These outlets, east, west, and south, are indispensable to the well-being of the people inhabiting and to inhabit 
this vast interior region. These outlets of right belong to the American people and to their successors forever. True to themselves, they will not ask where a line of separation shall be, but will vow rather there shall be no such line. So as you say, it's obviously very important to him. And And he's not denying that there are going to be borders somewhere, but he's trying to come up with which are the most sensible ones for economic and national defense purposes. And this is relevant to the Middle East today. What are actually the most sensible borders given geographic and demographic realities? It's relevant to Ukraine and Russia. You know, what are actually sensible borders demographically and geographically? I guess part of the point here that you're making is that it's a different world in the 18th century and 19th century. And in order to have a functional democracy or establish a functional democracy, because that's what you're talking about here, Britain, right. Switzerland to a less extent, but but they're not as democratic as the US, but they're more democratic than, you know, the, the king of France. Uh, they don't have massive you know. armies because they don't have long borders to defend, so they can rely on local militias, which is Switzerland, or militias and navies, which is Britain, and those are less threatening to liberty, and that's why America wants to be like Britain and Switzerland, because these are um, 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 liberty-loving, freedom-loving, self-governing societies. Now, you're saying, okay, well then, hasn't the 20th century proved that you don't need any of that? And the 20th century, to the extent it proved that, proved that in part because of Pax Americana and NATO and regimes in which Europe itself began to emulate the United States by coming up with economic integration, um, the EU and continental defense systems, NATO, that to some extent replicate what America did for the new world. America, the the union is about two different ideas. One, we unite against foreign powers, yes, but we also have to prevent, you know, uh, internal disunion, killing each other, uh, fighting each other. And NATO actually has both purposes. Um, We tend to focus on NATO as a bulwark against the former Soviet Union, now Russia, and that's what Joe Biden talked about in his address. But NATO has also worked to um, prevent um, warfare within the alliance, um, within the treaty organization. Four times over the course of a couple hundred years, uh, France and Germans, the French and the Germans, killed each other massively. The Napoleonic Wars, um, the Franco-Prussian War, World War I, World War II, and that doesn't happen anymore. Okay, so NATO has been a huge success, not just in resisting um, uh, uh, aggression of the Soviet pact um, nations, the Warsaw Pact nations, but also of creating more unity, military and economic in Central Europe, especially between the great powers of France and Germany. I mean, I'd say that it, it, you know, that's maybe a little bit giving NATO a little bit too much credit. But I think that uh, it, it played a role. It played a role in two ways. One is, you know, what what you're saying that it it uh, created a certain unity 
Um, but also, it allowed the French and German economies to recover. They didn't have to defend themselves. And when the economies recovered, they were then able to enter into an economic alliance, which was at first the steel, uh, I forget the exact name of it, um, and then it became the common market and then Mm -hmm. eventually the EU. Yes. Um, The European Steel Community or something. Something like that. And and by the way, um, the person that really led, had, had the image of this United States of Europe um, that's the phrase that he used uh, from the beginning. Early on was Winston Churchill. Well, let me tell you even earlier. You're into Churchill, but you know, let's let's talk about old Ben. So let me read you the last p- paragraph of an article I wrote in 1989 called "Some New World Lessons for the Old World." Here's what I wrote back in 1989. In mid October 1787. Benjamin Franklin, a framer who had spent considerable time in both the old and the new worlds, sent a letter to a European friend that alluded to the global implications of the proposed American Constitution. Modern-day Europeans would do well to ponder Franklin's evocative words. If our Constitution succeeds, I do not see why you might not in Europe carry the project of good Henry IV into execution by forming a federal union and one grand republic of all its different states and kingdoms by means of a like convention. So Ben Franklin, lightning rod, bifocals. I got to mention that because, of course, you're an ophthalmologist, uh, political cartoons, lending libraries, Public all these libraries. Yeah, 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 all these you know amazing innovations. But he's he's inventing Europe. Um, I still want to give my man Churchill some credit because he's saying this with the intention of including Germany at a time when, you know, it's, um, it's, it's almost inconceivable that he would have thought that way. And yet he, yet he did. So, and let's give the the Americans credit too. And the French aren't always known for giving the Americans uh, credit for things, but this is a famous French song and it's about how the Americans helped create the conditions of this by defeating Hitler and Mussolini, and then trying to bring Europe back to life. Si les Ricains n'étaient pas là, nous serions tous en Germanie à parler de je ne sais quoi, et saluer je ne sais qui. If the Americans weren't there, we'd all be speaking German and saluting, you know, God knows whom. I don't want to go carry it too far. The Russians had something to do with winning World War II also, but yes. Yes, but they weren't, their goal was not... Free mm-hmm. Europe, um, and they and what our president said is that they have their designs on Ukraine because it's actually a huge free liberal democracy, or at least it's trying to be in the middle of Europe, and and don't think it's going to end," said our president with Ukraine, because then they may have designs on Latvia, Lithuania, and Estonia, and then oh Poland, you're next. America helps create conditions for a free Europe in the image of America to some extent, you see. So that's not the model that George Washington has available to him because it's uh, because France is an absolutist monarchy at the time that um, Ben Franklin and George Washington and Alexander Hamilton are imagining this brave new world. Okay, well, I think we're, you know, running out of time for, for this episode, but I, 
I do want to tease that there's more uh, coming from the new book, um, and I expect to hear things that will explain to me why our borders in the South are what they are and what this has to do with the Constitution and what it has to do with, of course, slavery and uh, and Oh, and, and, uh, and the Iron Dome, Star Wars, drones, all sorts of stuff. Okay. And meanwhile, the speaker follies continue, and uh, that's uh, providing more fodder for us. So we'll be back with, with that again, I'm sure, uh, you know, next week along with uh, other, other matters. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Andy. Thank you.